Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome, everybody. This is Ryan Tripp. I'm returned to the New Books Network, the New Books and History channel on said network. I'm here today with Professor David D. Hall. He is Professor Emeritus of American Religious History at Harvard Divinity School. Earlier this year, quite recently, actually, he published The Puritans, A Transatlantic History, out by Princeton University Press. Welcome to the show, Professor Hall. Thanks for having me. So we're going to dive in straight into the questions here. Um, By way of introduction, why did you decide to foreground theology and the politics of religion in your transatlantic study of Puritans? And as sort of an offshoot question, uh, can you address uh, what exactly the Reformed International was? So I... I believe in the power of ideas that people, I mean, as an historian, I believe in the power of ideas that people are moved by larger principles. And in religious history, that's often very, very strongly the case. So I wanted to make the book, it aspires to make as clear as possible a handful, a small handful of ideas, themes, biblical images that, uh, prompted the movement that in its own time in the 16th century and since became known as Puritanism. By the way, that's a word that these people did not use themselves. It was a negative word. I'll come back to that later on. So when I say theology or repertory of theological ideas, let me let me shrink that down. So I'm not talking the book does not talk about the divinity of Christ or who God is. It's really a book about the idea and the ideas of the church in the world, the visit, what, the, what they would call in the 17th century, the visible church, the church as an institution in the world, as, of course, an instrument of God's purposes, an instrument of Christ's purposes, because it's where redemption occurs. And uh, as we know from our own day, as much as we can learn as historians from the 16th and 17th centuries, the church in the world is always and everywhere caught up in politics, uh, a question of authority. What is the church's authority uh, vis-a-vis the authority of monarchs, the state, uh, the powers that be in a, in a given society? And so in 16th and 17th century England and Scotland and New England, uh, there are a number of players in this field. So my book is about a kind of back and forth reciprocal process between high, a high, powerful, strong vision of the church as a certain kind of place, a pure place, a, a place uh, observing divine, responsive to divine commands, and the politics that unfolds from that idea when it's opposed or runs up against other people's ideas of either the church or of their own authority. And when I when I talk about these ideas, I foreground one 
strand of Protestantism. So when the Reformation happened, we think of Martin Luther, 1517, but almost out of the gate, the, the, the Protestant movement uh, split. It split into different strands, different traje- trajectories. There's the Lutheran trajectory, which is with us still to this day. There's what was called the Anabaptist, or sometimes the radical version, which is also with us to this day in the form of Baptists and Mennonites and many others. And then there's the tradition that is often called Calvinism after John Calvin, that's present in the German Reform, the French Reform, the Swiss Reform, the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, on it goes. And uh, I prefer, I just uh, happen to prefer a different nomenclature, the Reformed International, the word international, and that's the word that I foreground in the book. I, I don't use the word Calvinism because it's kind of tainted. It suggests that every idea came from Calvin, and that's simply not the case. So what was the significance of the 16th century Vesterian controversy and Elizabethan settlement uh, to the goals of what you describe as Puritanism and leading separatism? And what about the Cartwright-Whitgift debate? Yeah, these are all topics that I cover in some detail. So so just a, a brief word about the state, the condition of the Church of England in 1558 when Elizabeth I uh, came to the throne, she succeeded a, a Catholic, her Catholic half-sister. So overnight, the Church of England passed from Catholic to Protestant. And in that new Protestant church, there were lots of what uh, some observers discerned as Catholic elements. There were still Catholic pieces around in churches and how they were built, how they were designed, in worship. And uh, in the, the dress, the, the garments that the priest, the minister, was wearing. So the, some, some ministers and bishops and lay people in the Church of England said, hey, look, we have to complete the Reformation of the Church of England. That is, make it fully Protestant. And Elizabeth said, uh, uh, no, I don't think I like that. I think I like this kind of hybrid Church. She was very conservative in her own political views. So the flashpoint in the 1560s, when uh, she had settled into control of the church, and by the way, she was the head of the church, so she could she had the last word. Was something that may seem absurd to us, not absurd in the 16th century. What kind of garment the minister wore, and she ordered them all to continue wearing garments that were. Catholic garments in the eyes of the uh, leading reformers. Uh, so this became known as the Festerian controversy because uh, a significant group of ministers said, no way, we're not going to wear these garments that descend from Catholicism because they use very, very strong words. These are emblems of the Antichrist. And we have a name for this. Historians have a name for this. It was a name for it in the 16th century. It is non-conformity. I am not going to conform to the official rules of the church. And then the question rises, of course, maybe you kick these people out, in which case you lose a cadre of seemingly quite good ministers, energetic, engaged ministers or not. So from the, from the, the, the seemingly small question of what priests, what ministers should wear, there arose a larger ambition, a larger set of goals for these people who protested 
uh, where the queen had stopped. I mean, she had just drawn a line. Stop. We're going to stop the progress of reform. They said, no, we have to continue. So what's next on the list? Worship and how the sacraments are observed. Big issue. Uh, whether you kneel to receive the Holy Communion or not. They were against kneeling. That's too Catholic. So they want a very different kind of worship centered on sermons and prayer and lots of scripture readings. The queen says, no, I like, I like it the way it is. Then there's bishops. And again, for us, you know, who might, might say, who cares about bishops? But bishops were another legacy from Catholicism, episcopacy, another legacy from uh, Catholicism. And in the Reformed tradition, there are no bishops. Every minister has exactly the same rank. They're just ministers. Uh, so they said, let's have a church like that. Uh, and then thirdly, and this was what really angered the queen, they said, oh, by the way, uh, the church should have authority to settle its own affairs with doctrine and worship. And we respect the monarchy and the monarchy is charged by God to protect us, to save us from heresy and blasphemy, and above all, save us from Catholicism. But the church should be autonomous. And she said, no, uh, I, I am the head of the church. And uh, a considerable number of people in the church supported her point of view, especially, of course, all, all the bishops. So this bitter struggle arose in the 1570s, 1580s, uh, back and forth. When I say bitter, it's, it's through publications and it's through demonstrations like nonconformity. Uh, so I just want to, I'm going to, uh, Ryan, I'm just going to move to a, a little another question, if I may, I, but I'll raise myself. So the question is, uh, we, we might think of England as a kind of very top-down governed society, and in a formal sense it was. It had a queen and a privy council, and nobilities and things of that sort. It is very, very top-down from our point of view. Parliament was not really representative, but it's a very ramshackle system. By ramshackle, I mean that uh, there were 8,500 parishes in the Church of England, and uh, there was no button the queen could press or any bishop could press to make sure all these were being observed or all these were under their control or being practiced. There's a lot of lay support for the Puritans, a lot of lay support by wealthy people. So the Puritans entrenched themselves at the local level. They entrenched themselves at Cambridge University, and there's no way to get rid of them. In fact, they flourish. The Puritan movement begins to flourish, even though the Queen denied them everything they wanted. So let's move a little bit to uh, Scotland. How were 1560s measures implemented for Scottish church structure? And, and if you can address the second book, Book of Discipline, that would be great. And when, as well as how, did the Kirk acquire a Presbyterian system of church governance? So Scotland, the history of the Reformation in Scotland is uh, almost the opposite of the history of the Reformation in England. And uh, it's really it really begins as a coup d'etat, kind of little revolutionary moment in 1559-1560, when a small group of very, very exceptionally able ministers, John Knox most famously, and then a group of nobility who allied with them, basically pushed aside uh, the head of state, who was uh, uh, a French woman, Mary of Guise, not really very powerful, and then pushed aside her daughter, Mary, Queen of Scots, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots, 
And in the 1560s, the Scottish Parliament acknowledged that Scotland was now a Protestant country, uh, endorsed a uh, confession of faith. Uh, and so suddenly this fairly small group of ministers and nobility were actually sort of running the country. And, uh, and they were then able to do away with every Catholic aspect of worship. There is, uh, they, they have a, a book of worship that's uh, actually based on one from Geneva that they borrowed from Geneva, where Calvin was head. And uh, ministers are wearing the black scholar's gown, which Presbyterian ministers in this country still wear. Uh, the services are focused on preaching, not on the sacraments. Uh, and, uh, and then the question of structure arose. What kind of organization do you want? They wanted to do away with bishops. And in 1578, after some confusion and uncertainty about all the details of structure, they established a system of, uh, at the bottom, there are the local church associations called presbyteries. And at the top, there's a countrywide gathering called a general assembly. And this is known as Presbyterianism from a Greek word that then becomes, passes over into English, a Presbyterian system. And I should say that the, Presby the Presbyterians, to call them that, by the 1570s, are also insisting on a version of separation of church and state. It's, we, we can't use that word in the American sense, but, but by, by that I mean simply that they insisted that the church was free to run its own affairs. And this, this kind of worked for a while, and uh, then it didn't work. And let me just turn to the politics of religion in Scotland. So the king of Scotland was 23 months old, a baby, basically, when he was crowned. This was James VI, Mary Stuart's uh, only child. She had fled to England, where she was eventually beheaded. And so uh, when James VI came of age in the 15, late 1570s, 1580s, he, he decided that he wanted to strengthen his kingship, first of all, against the nobility, very, very powerful in Scotland, and he succeeded in doing that, and then against the church, uh, which uh, rebuffed him, said, you know, you, you, you can't interfere in our affairs. But he said, look, I'm, I'm a Protestant. He was a Protestant. I'll, 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 I have the church's best interest in mind. Oh, no, you don't. Oh, no, you don't. You're interfering with us. And... Uh, and James had a point. It's when I was reading the Scottish records, it was a, it was quite surprising to come across the strong language to his face that some of the leading ministers used. I mean, they were really quite outspoken uh, to James and uh, basically insulted him. And the more this happened in the 1590s, the less enchanted he became. With Presbyterianism, the church system in Scotland. And by that time, he knew that he was going to succeed Elizabeth because she had no children. So he looked south to England and he said, Oh, if I can only get across the border, I'll have a better time. And that leads us into the next phase of, of things. What were the theological origins, the Augustinianism, and those languages or frameworks for the practical divinity? And why was this practical divinity experientially unusual? Yeah, so the book, um, I, in the book, I, I turn away from structure and politics and spend a lot of time talking about how 
the Protestantism of these people was was lived lived out in piety and devotion, in uh, what we might call simply conversions, and uh, and in many ways this is the heart of the matter because Puritanism was a powerfully evangelical movement. By that I mean they looked the ministers who led this movement and the lay people who were heavily involved. They looked around them and they saw all these English people or Scottish people or God help us, Irish, Irish people, because that's also part of the story, who weren't really, didn't really seem to be Protestants at all, or just barely Protestants. And so the question was, how do you raise the bar? How do you bring people up to a certain level? And, uh, and their answer was to preach in a certain manner, uh, teach, teach a certain version of the Christian message, their version of the gospel message of salvation. And then to uh, urge lay people very, very strongly, urge them very, very strongly, every, every sermon, every Sunday, every possible moment, to engage with devotional practices, uh, organize their lives around a series of routines, which uh, are, and, and, and turn them into these kind of very, very strong Protestants. And this is a project that we might say, in retrospect, was bound to fail. You can't turn everybody into a zealot uh, Christian, but they tried it very, very hard. So Augustine appears in this story in my book because he, uh, in responding to uh, other theologians of his own time, he asserted that uh, God had predestined, that is to say, arranged beforehand at the very moment of creation, who was going to be saved and who, and uh, so this is called the doctrine of election, or sometimes the doctrine of predestination. And the Puritans loved Augustine, as did many others, even Catholics. And uh, so they were Augustinian in the sense of adopting the point of view that you can't be saved by your own efforts. God has arranged this for you. And then, of course, the figure of Christ enters the story because Christ died on the cross to save us from original sin. So we are all pardoned. And in that sense, we are already well along the path to being saved. But the Puritans, this is what makes the Puritanism so interesting. And it's, it's not the only version of Protestantism or Catholicism that does this. It says to lay people, the ministers say to lay people, well, there's still a lot for you to do. There's still stuff you must do. You must be active. You can't just sit there and say, well, it's all over, it's all taken for granted, I'm saved, or maybe I'm not saved. So, uh, and then they say, so there's things to do, chiefly repent, and uh, then organize your life so you're, you're not misbehaving. But they add another layer to it, and this, Ryan, is what you were referring to, and what I talk about at length in the book, is they say, uh, you know, just going through the motions is, God doesn't care about that, Christ doesn't care about that. He wants you to, to act from the heart. And by the heart, they don't mean, of course, our little thumping heart. They mean the inner self, the soul of the self. They want, they want you to be truly committed in the sense that your entire self, your emotional self, or as they would say, your affective self was completely involved. And, uh, okay, okay. That's, so that's a, that's raising the bar pretty high. And they, they became, the, the periods became very careful scrutinizers of what they called hypocrisy or formalism. 
if you're just going through the motions, that's formalism or hypocrisy. And very astute and analytical students of what happens in the heart. Uh, and so it's a, it's a religion that's very, very emotional. Um, and so I attend to that. I tell life stories. I, tell, I draw from people's diaries about, about the emotions they were feeling. They weep. Uh, they feel sometimes that God isn't with them, and then they're very, very sad, or we might say depressed in our language, and then the Holy Spirit comes and renews their sense of joy and presence. I mean, it's really, it's really a very, very uh, uh, emotional form of religion, quite contrary to what we sometimes think Puritanism to be. And, uh, and that side of their tradition, that side of this practical divinity, as it became known as, has had a long-lasting influence. I mean, it lasted through the 19th century. It still still is present in British and American Protestantism and worldwide Protestantism to this day. So on that note, what were the roles of devotion, self-examination, and justifications of the ministry in this practical divinity? And if you can also just address uh, the role of assurance, particularly in the context of predestination, um, um, and it's uh, significance to those Arminian uh, objections. Sure. Well, the so um, devotion figures in the book because uh, the ideal Christian life, as understood by this minister, these ministers and their allies, was not not unlike Catholic life in some sense. Uh, so. In theory, every day you would uh, do a little exercise of self-examination, sort of search yourself for sins that you had not repented or mistakes that you had made that you would then remedy. Uh, Every day you would read the scriptures, some passages of scriptures. Every day you would pray. Uh, Every day you, not every day, but some days you might participate in what today we would call small groups where you're sharing uh, discussions of the Bible and discussions of your own spiritual history. Uh, so uh, there's a there's, so the, the essence of it is don't waste time going to the theater. Don't waste time you know, just hanging out at the tavern. Organize your life around a pattern of devotion. And we can't really say what numbers of people did this, but we know from certain diaries and above all from was preached that this mattered a great deal and uh, not every day but very often the people who were Puritans did actually uh, do self-examination and repent and bewail their sinful condition the 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 book takes up and it could have this I could have written an entire chapter about this in fact I cut out a lot it actually eventually got too long the leading question was okay am I a hypocrite Am I a formalist? Am I not really loved by Jesus? Or am I saved? The great question that the jailer asks uh, in, uh, in uh, the book of Acts, uh, am I saved? And uh, so, so what's the evidence of being saved? And on this question, there, there, there arose a division of opinion. And... Uh, and that figures strongly in the book, especially in the, when we get to the 17th century, where the divisions became very, very visible and very, very acute and, and led to all kinds of problems. 
So the question is, uh, what, what can I what can I rely on? The key word is justification, which is a technical theological word. It's 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 when Christ imputes his own righteousness to you, and poof, everything is okay. So what are, what are the, what are the signs of justification? Well, the most obvious sign would be your personal righteousness or good works, because the assertion can be made that. Only someone who was saved could actually do good works and overcome selfishness, corruption, and so forth and so on. Oh, yes. Okay, so I'll, I'll do lots of good works. But as soon as that position is taken and people rush out to count up their good works and do more good works, this sounds like formalism. So then there are other ministers who say, wait a minute, we need we need to bring back in the witness of the Holy Spirit, which is basically invisible except that it is felt in the heart. To which the answer is, well, can't people fake that? I mean, can't they fake the, the witness of the Spirit? And is that really reliable? So there's a kind of loop. Yeah, a loop would be a good, I don't use that word in the book, but that would be a good analogy for what happens. You ground the loop. One moment it's the witness of the Spirit. One moment it's what's in your heart. At the moment it's what you do. Counting up your do, counting up your doing, and uh, this this troubles a lot of historians, a lot of theological historians who uh, feel that this system can either tilt too much toward works or too much toward what's called antinomianism, which is no works at all. Uh, so finding the balance is a struggle for lay people. It's a struggle for ministers. And it's especially a struggle in the early 17th century because alternatives within Calvinism were emerging. The most famous of them is called Arminianism, after a Dutch theologian whose name was Jacobus Arminius. And he, he says, well, God does take account of what you do. In other words, he modifies predestination. And there's some people who say, well, yeah, maybe, maybe he does. And plenty of other people say, oh, no way, we can't, we can't have that. But nonetheless, nonetheless, continue to evoke works or duties or righteousness as evidence of being justified or evidence of being saved. So again, it's a, it's a loop. Uh, what's, so, what's so interesting about this loop is that, uh, may I jump to New England here for a moment, uh, Ryan? Do you mind if I? Sure. So to jump ahead to New England, which, or to Massachusetts in particular, which was founded by uh, English Puritans in 1629, 1630, uh, Plymouth was founded earlier than 1620 by this tiny group of of uh, peers who we'll come back to. So the colonists get over here to Massachusetts, and there there's all kinds of dynamics that are unfolding. I'm going to mention just two of them. One is uh, they come over. You can imagine coming over that they want the highest standard of purity. You know, just we're here. We're 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 we're, we're finally out from under the Church of England and all of its various compromises. We're going to have the highest standard of purity. But what is that? What is the highest standard of purity? And Roger Williams says, well, the highest standard of purity is to be very, very scrutinizing of who's going to be members of the church, who's only the really pure should be in. But then that begs the question, who are the really pure? And then he and another man look around and they see that there's a flag being used. It's the king's flag. It's a military flag, really. And it has a Catholic emblem in it. 
just left over. And he says, we have to cut this out of the flag. We can't possibly have this kind of flag flying in this purified country. And there's a huge controversy that erupts over whether to purify the flag. And it's what, what's, what the problem with the controversy is that if word got back to England that they were cutting this out, it would anger the king. And they didn't know what would happen if that were the case. And then there's the question of assurance of salvation. And there are people who say, a small group of people who say, we really have to focus on the witness of the Spirit. And, and then a larger group of people say, oh, no, we can combine that with works and duties. And uh, there is a fierce, fierce struggle that breaks out in 1636, 1637. Uh, of course, the majority prevails. And, some people are exiled to Rhode Island or go back to England. Most famously, Anne Hutchinson. Roger Williams is also exiled to Rhode Island. Happily, Rhode Island was there, just a spare pot of land that the Massachusetts didn't control. So the the so New England. What's fascinating: the dust begins to settle in New England after 1637. So-called antinomians have been pushed out, and Roger Williams has been pushed out, and not very many people in the long run, but some of them pushed out, uh, is that they look around and they say, okay, we've got a, we've got a pretty good pure church, uh, but uh, let's, have the, let's have the government order that everybody attend each Sunday service, whether they are church members or not. So in every town, my book talks a lot about uh, one town in particular, Cambridge, Massachusetts, because of the records that survive. And so everybody is attending, all the children are being catechized, everybody is obliged to pay to contribute to the cost of the minister, but only some can participate in the sacraments, the Lord's Supper, Holy Communion, children be baptized. So uh, there's a name for this system uh, that another historian has uh, used that I appropriate called parochial congregationalism. So on the one hand, it's a congregational-based church, no synods, no presbyteries, no general assemblies. Everything is local, and churches are not town-based, but gathered. But alongside that model, the colonists add this other layer of everybody attending and all the children being catechized. And so it's a, one, of the, one of the lessons of this book is that in New England, as in England and Scotland, and also in Ireland, uh, don't look for consistency. Don't please, please don't look for consistency. People accepted; they lived out contradictions. They knew of some; they didn't know of others. We see some; they didn't see. They saw some; maybe we didn't see. So the history of the history of Protestantism in England and Scotland and Ireland and New England in the 16th and 17th centuries is. Not a history of a kind of a machine unfolding impeccably, absolutely clearly. It's really a story of people doing the best they can under very difficult circumstances. Uh, political circumstances in England and Scotland and Ireland and other kinds of circumstances just you know, dying by the scores in Massachusetts because of the weather and lack of food and things of that sort and struggling in various ways. It's a story of, as I say, uh, quests, searches for purity, searches for an alternative to Catholicism that were met, but also deeply complicated. And I, I personally find them quite moving to look back upon. I'm not, I'm not 
I'm not speaking out of any particular bias on my part. I think just intrinsically the historical record, especially of the Scots and the colonists and some of the English, is a story of well-meaning people trying to do the best by what they understood the Bible to say, what Christ wanted them to say, what biblical history told them to say, and and then what what, what is possible within their own particular historical setting to actually accomplish. So, on that note, in 16th and 17th century England, why did narratives of disorder and decline emerge? And how did state churches come to enforce uh, social discipline? And what blunted this reformation of manners? And what did Puritan-style reform look like, especially in the context of liberty and divine sovereignty? Yeah, so the one of the features of, of English, uh, early, early modern British Protestantism, is actually a biblical theme. Because in the Old Testament, you know, God hands the laws to Moses and very promptly the people disobey. And again and again in the Old Testament, uh, there's a good king and then there's a bad king, good prophet, and people ignore the prophet. And so there's a ongoing alternation between corruption or decline or what we often call referred to as declension and restoring purity. It's a dialectic. Uh, mostly a story of decline punctuated by moments of returning to uh, a high level of righteousness. So it's, uh, when you come over to, you know, Shakespeare's time in England and Scotland, same time, it's, it's quite astonishing how universal the sense was that these countries, these cultures, these societies were declining. And some of this had actually economic sources. There were a lot more unemployed people. Inflation was rampant. Uh, they, didn't have, they didn't have the word unemployment, but that's what was happening. They called them the masterless men, masterless women. And then there were places like taverns, which seem intrinsically sites of disorder. And then there's unlicensed sex, and there were too many children being born out of wedlock. And people weren't respecting marriage, and this is also actually a, a fact. Uh, so all these all these cries or you know people people ministers and kings and privy councils and parliaments oh we got to do something about this and, and the name for doing something about it is called a reformation of manners and this is universally subscribed upon subscribed uh, this idea this concept and the idea is to establish a, a, a Christian society a sanctified society a society that's fully aligned with divine law. Let me just take one example, uh, the Sunday Sabbath. So in England, uh, people were supposed to go to church Sunday mornings and sometimes Sunday afternoons, but then in the evening they were kind of free to do what they wanted to. So a lot of them went to the taverns and did what people do in taverns. Or a lot of them played games or danced Saturday, Sunday afternoons party because the rest of the week was pretty much spent in labor. And so the question is, uh, or, 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 they, or they wandered around the church and didn't sit down, and came in and out. And, and by the way, there were usually trade fairs. The markets were sometimes open on Sundays. And so there's this huge uproar about the Sunday Sabbath and making it more intact, and making it more righteous and 
suppressing ale houses and suppressing markets and making sure people turned up in the afternoon. Uh, and, uh, and by the way, this is a stone, to use an analogy, this is a metaphor, this is a stone that gets rolled up the hill decade after decade, uh, year after year, Anglicans, Puritans, you name it, the stone always rolls back down the hill. It's just impossible to get everybody to behave the same way on Sunday Sabbath. There's not enough police around to, no police around to enforce this uh, rule of this vision. So there's a general perception of decline. You can see it actually in some of Shakespeare's plays. And then, so the Puritans uh, borrow this notion of decline. They reiterate this notion of decline and they have a very, very strong view of a sanctified society. Uh, and they articulate their vision in books and in a handful of towns that they control. They do some remarkable experiments with setting people to work. Or they were also bothered by illiteracy, and so they want people to be literate so they can read the Bible. They, uh, you ask about the agenda, the Puritan agenda. So a strong Sunday Sabbath, literacy, work. Uh, fairness and justice in the workings of the government. They, they are very strong advocates of law reform because the law system is very, very arbitrary and favoring the rich. Uh, and they don't like, they don't like that. They're mostly middle, middling kind of people. They don't like that. Uh, and so, can I, may, may I just jump ahead for a moment now to the uh, 1640 period? 1640s period. Go ahead. So, the, there's a there's a crisis that occurs. The book, the, the entire book, ultimately hinges on a crisis that occurs in the 1630s. And what happened in the 1630s is that the then king of Britain, king of both England and Scotland, and Ireland and Wales, Charles I, turned away completely from the agenda I've been citing, the reformed agenda, the reformed international the vision of purity that the Puritans were arguing for, he he really did not like this group of people. And he regarded them as subversive of the monarchy, as wanting, wanting to subvert the monarchy. So he created a what we call anti-Puritanism. It was already there, but he, 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 he enlarged it, publicized it everywhere. The Puritans were against the monarchy, and so he had to suppress them. And as it happened, the Puritans had a, a retort, a reply to this. They were not taking this, you know, without responding. So they said, well, actually, uh, Charles I and his advisors in the church and in civil society were actually secret, secret allies of Catholicism, and their goal was to restore Catholicism to the Church of England and the Church of Scotland. And... Uh, so these are two powerful things, anti-popery anti and anti-Puritanism. But the one that came to prevail was actually anti-Catholicism. Because the king made a huge mistake. He went to Scotland and he said to the Scots, uh, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to impose on you the English Book of Worship just discarding your worship traditions altogether that you've had for 60 or 70 years, I'm going to impose on you the English book of worship, which is, from the Puritan point of view, way too Catholic. And there's a famous date in Scottish religious history. It's July 23rd, 1637, 
when uh, the king, uh, he hears that nothing has happened yet with this uh, new prayer book, and so he tells the Scottish bishops, on this date, July 23rd, you have to start using the prayer book in Edinburgh, the capital of the city. And when the bishop rises to read from the common prayer, this new prayer book, uh, a woman hurls a stool at him. They sit on stools, not in pews. And other people, women mostly, hurl other things, less savory things at him. And he runs out of the church, and there's a riot. People pursue him, hurling more things, and other bishops run. And uh, this riot prompts an insurgency, a political insurgency led by nobility and senior clergy against the religious policies and the political policies of Charles I. And uh, what's, what's completely unexpected is that these insurgents take over the Scottish government. Charles I's authority evaporates in Scotland in late 1637-38. And, uh, and then there's some episodes which I'm going to skip. He tries to uh, come with an army to subdue the insurgency. He's unsuccessful. He has to call a parliament. And that parliament in England is just enraged by his policies in England, including his religious policies. And... Uh, there ensues this astonishing period in English history that's known as the period of the English Revolution, the Puritan Revolution, touched off, as I emphasize very strongly in my book, by the Scottish Revolution, in which the state church is dismantled, the monarchy, actually, uh, Charles is eventually executed, 1649, uh, and a man named Oliver Cromwell comes into power as the head of state, a Puritan, actually. So it's a, it's a remarkable period of time. Now, uh, remind me of your question. Uh, I've overlooked a part of your question. So uh, what did Puritan-style reform look like, especially in the context of liberty and divine sovereignty? Yeah, so, um, yeah, well, the, the, the ongoing issue for the Puritans in terms of reform and a good society was uh, divine law. What does the Bible tell us? In the Old Testament, uh, is, of course, full of laws that God gives the children of Israel, the Ten Commandments, but others. And so uh, the Puritans in England and in New England and, and in Scotland want, a, want, want, want to observe divine law. And so they want, for example, adultery, which is sex between people who aren't, uh, between mar- someone who's married and someone who's not, they want that to be a capital crime, in other words, to be executed for it. Uh, on the other hand, when it comes to theft, which was a capital crime in England above a certain amount, they want restitution, which is what the Old Testament uh, prescribes. Strong views of the Sunday Sabbath, strong views on blasphemy, also to be punished by execution. Uh, and so actually under, under the Puritan regime in England and Scotland and New England, Law code. Uh, this is all, in, all as you as you were asking, all in the name of a sanctified society. You have to have the right code of laws. The liberty comes in because um, because they also believe they also believe very very strongly that Christians are are born to liberty. This is to quote Saint Paul, uh, born unto liberty, and by that they mean. 
they mean several things, but I'll simplify to say that uh, lay people should have the right to participate in church government. So there's a lay, I, I, I'll restrict that, lay men should have the right to participate in church government in running congregations or running churches. And this is not a Catholic idea. This is not an Anglican idea. It's a Reformed idea and especially a Puritan idea. So liberty, liberty, which is a very, very confusing word because uh, it means so many different things, means for the Puritans primarily the liberty to receive the word freely and the liberty to have a role in actually governing the church. And that leads to the form of church government we call it in today, America we call it, and England as well congregationalism, which is a church without any hierarchy of any kind. Every church, every local church is technically free to do exactly as it wants. And the lay people, now, now including women, of course, can govern that church. Uh, so the 1640s are a fascinating period because the Puritans finally get to try out in England and Scotland some of their more radical ideas. And in New England, where they have a clean slate, there's nobody there to oppose them. They can do so even more fully. But, uh, Ryan, I want to just say, I, I was mentioning uh, contradictions earlier. So if we, went through, if, we, if we went through every surviving court record from Massachusetts, Connecticut, New Haven, Plymouth, and we said, well, how many executions, how many executions for adultery were there? If we got this law, adultery is a capital crime. The answer is there are about three people who are executed. And you're probably smiling at this point because is that the sum total, sum total of people who committed adultery? Absolutely not. And in Scotland, it was the same thing. Uh, I know of two people in Scotland who are executed for adultery. And again, that's just, a, you know, whatever, you know, whatever the figures, but we don't, we don't really know quantitative for the other side. But so... It's, it's as I wrote this elsewhere in another book. It's as though it's you show God that you really care about adultery, blasphemy, but you realize the cost to your own human community of executing people. It disturbs a whole friendship network, a family network. It's it has other problems that come with it. So people can be, you know, mildly punished in other ways, or sit on a stool, or sit in the stocks, something like that for a while. But so these laws, which look to us so incredibly punitive, the one that looks so incredibly punitive is that uh, children, children could, children at the age of 14 could in principle be executed if they abuse their parents. Now, wouldn't we like something like that today? But in any case, uh, I mean, not that extreme, but no child, zero children were ever executed or even brought to trial. So it's, again, uh, we're talking about Puritanism. And, you know, today there's a sense that every, everybody uses the word rigid or dogmatic or bittered or persecuting, things like that. These are part of the anti-Puritan tradition, which lives on to our present time. The historical record certainly shows some strong principles, some strong visions of what a Christian society would look like. But let me just go back to the liberty thing for a moment. I don't want to talk here about Oliver Cromwell. 
So Oliver Cromwell concluded that God did not want the church to ever persecute anyone. And he really meant everyone. And so he believed in what he called, and we would call, liberty of conscience. Uh, there's a spiritual unity that brings together well-meaning people, Christians of all kinds. Uh, but that spiritual unity cannot be uh, coupled with the church trying to impose itself. So during his brief period as uh, head of the state of England, 1650, 51, depending on the date, he died in 1658, his government practiced liberty of conscience. Uh, it didn't mean that they were perfect. The record is not perfect by a long shot. But he did quietly allow Jews to be readmitted to England and to practice their religion quietly. He looked the other way when he heard about Catholics who were practicing. He looked the other way when he heard about anti-Puritan Anglicans were practicing. Uh, he looked the other way when some really heterodox ideas began to surface about the divinity of Christ, like denying the divinity of Christ. He looked the other way. And uh, so Puritanism, again, is deeply a deeply paradoxical thing. On the one hand, we might say, hey, it's always persecuted or seems to be persecuted. It certainly sets out to eliminate blasphemy and heresy. But then you've got Oliver Cromwell, and you've got John Milton, and you've got lots of other, you've got Roger Williams, you've got lots of other perfectly authentic Puritans who take a different stand. So its legacy to us is, its legacies to us are not one legacy, but several legacies. And you mentioned uh, ahead of time, uh, Ryan, that you wanted me to say a little bit about the epilogue. Is now a good time to turn to the epilogue? Sure. So uh, my editor at Princeton, who was pretty tolerant of what I was doing, although a little surprised that the book had become so long uh, when I turned it in, she said, well, don't just end the story in 1660, which is where I do end it. Uh, tell us what about the afterlife of Puritanism. So the afterlife of Puritanism is actually a very interesting subject that I sadly could only treat in a very short space. So on the one hand, think, think of the presence in our own culture, our own society in the 19th century, early 20th century, of movements of moral discipline, moral reform, prohibition, a prohibition amendment to the Constitution. Strengthening, strengthening the Sunday Sabbath. There was actually an attempt in the 1870s to add an amendment to the Constitution to protect the Sunday Sabbath. Or, of course, anti-slavery, which some Protestants did not side with, but others did. And before the Civil War, this became a huge issue uh, among Protestants and then in the country as a whole. Uh, and on it goes. And I, I happen to have grown up in this culture. My family was a teetotaling family and a very strongly Sabbatarian family, so this, I felt the long shadow of the Puritan movement very directly in how I was raised. Uh, so that's one way of talking about the long impact of the Puritan movement, uh, and Methodists and Baptists contributed very heavily to that, to those impulses, Presbyterians, Congregationalists to some extent. There's another way of looking at the legacy of Puritanism, and that is to realize that 
by the 19th century, no one was, was a Puritan. I mean, the politics of Puritanism had ceased to be relevant for the most part. So people are inventing their version of Puritanism. The, the, the way is clear to say, well, the Puritans were this, the Puritans were that, the Pilgrims were this, the Pilgrims were that. So a lot of what I talk about in the epilogue is myths or images or kind of reconstructions of what the Puritans were. And we have a famous example of that in America in Nathaniel Hawthorne's novel, The Scarlet Letter, which uh, sadly uh, is off base in terms of the historical evidence, but has had a tremendous impact on our, what we think of Puritans being, and harsh, grim, hypocritical people. Uh, Arthur Miller's The Crucible is, is rolling us too. Uh, and, uh, and then there are others who see the Puritans as sort of saviors of a fallen country, and the country in decline. And I touch on that a little bit. There's, especially in England in the 19th century, there were people who rose up as prophets and say, our country is in decline, England, Scotland is in decline. And could we go back to being a Puritan country? There are probably still some people in this country who feel that way. Uh, that wasn't my own family tradition. Uh, so that's so the so the epilogue is reminds us of something. I can I maybe I could end here or come close to ending here. Reminds us that historians when they when they go back to write about the past, they're telling stories. And our goal as historians, our purpose as historians, is to base those stories on what we would think of as evidence or sources, to align them as fully as possible. And that's certainly my goal in this book. If, if I, that's the first goal, the second goal, the third goal, the last goal of this book is to be faithful, faithful to the words and actions that people actually took the 16th and 17th centuries to reproduce as clearly, as lucidly as possible what they said, to make sense of them for us. But, we're also, but we also bring to the past our own, our own concerns, our own questions, and our own anxieties, our own hopes, our own frustrations. And so inevitably there are values that we, we have that are maybe slightly different from what the Puritans have or what anybody would study we want to make more of them or less of them. And, you know, I don't think this is a, this is not a book about America in decline, thank God, whether it is or isn't is irrelevant to this book. It's not a book about some more hopeful future for America, if it were purposes. I don't say that in the least. I don't think that in the least. I should take that point of view. But it is a book about a tradition, the Puritan tradition, in the 17th century, was rich in resources, rich in spiritual resources that could be still uh, helpful today, rich in political resources in the sense of making so much of participation, fairness, and justice, and equity. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's the book, the Puritan tradition is over in a formal sense. It's gone, ended in the 17th century in a formal sense. But I hope that the epilogue at least reminds us that there are echoes, residues, possibilities that linger on to the present 
time. Uh, and I talked about this in an earlier book, uh, 2011, it's called The Reforming People, even more strongly saying that now. So that's covered at some ground, and maybe there's some questions still that you have. Uh, yes, I just have a couple question, a couple uh, questions, um, specifically in the context of New England, which you've already alluded to. Um, how did the who were the Laudians, and uh, how did that program generate the Great Atlantic Migration, and who were the transatlantic saints uh, seeking to advance church membership as a prerequisite for civil governance? And if you can address uh, the congregational way, what do you mean by that? Sure. Let me, let me start with the, with the third, the congregational way, and I'll work my way back. So the congregational way, so the, the term congregationalism that you see all you know, around New England and elsewhere, this is a congregational church, uh, congregational, didn't come into being until the 19th century. So in the 17th century, uh, the, the ism version didn't come into being until much later. And so in the 17th century, uh, the term that was used in New England, it's the congregational way, just the way of doing things. And so it, what it means is that there's no hierarchy. Every, every local church is, is, is autonomous, do what it wishes, ideally consulting with other churches. Ministers are elected by the congregation. The membership of the congregation is not parish-based, that is to say automatic, but it's or not geographical. It's, it's faith-based or spiritual-based. So that's the rundown in a congregational way, and it became the dominant system here in New England. It was never more than a minority position in England, except to this day. The Presbyterians had outnumbered them. And then, the, I'll take the first of your questions, the, the Laudians. So, the, when Charles I came to the throne in 1625, he he found he formed a strong relationship with a bishop in the church named William Laud, L-A-U-D, and Laud became his spiritual advisor. And Laud, who's a deeply admired person by many in the Church of England, elsewhere, uh, Laud had a vision of the Church of England that was uh, to emphasize the sacraments, not preaching, rather than preaching to emphasize the holiness of the church and make it restore its beauty and some of its Catholic aspects, uh, images of the saints and so forth and so on. And uh, so that program advanced under Charles's leadership, and that's why Charles, as I was talking about some minutes before, wanted to impose an English-style prayer book on the Scots. That was a Laudian gesture. Laud was with him when he made that decision. And may, it may have may have been involved, or certainly involved in making that decision. So Laudians, or that's just a name for all those who agreed with Laud, Laudians were became the strongest, under, under Charles I, they became the strongest party in the Church of England, who were running the Church of England. And then Laud was arrested for treason in 1640, and the, and the Parliament came into being, the new Parliament, and executed in 1645. Charles was executed in 1649. So he became a kind of martyr, Figure, he is a kind of martyr figure, as is Charles, to this this, this tradition of Anglo-Catholicism, as it's usually known. And when Laud, when, when as this was happening in the 1620s and 1630s, as the Laudian party was taking control of the church, one can imagine the alarm 
the alarm among Puritans in England, well, we still have a place in the church. Will there be any room for us in the church? And so that's when some decided to cross the Atlantic. Not, not only a small fraction of the Puritans in England crossed the Atlantic to come to New England. And when they came, and when they came, they, they began to use the term visible saint or who could be a church member. That's your second question. And that was to raise the bar for church membership very, very high. Be a visible saint. Of course, the invisible saint is known only to God. That's a mystery. God knows. But to be a visible saint, man, that is, that is to jack up the standards. And uh, the book tells, in the book I describe that standard, reactions to that standard, and eventually how that standard was eased, relaxed in the course of the 17th century. So ultimately, why did Puritans engage in you know, poetry, fast days, the Germans, uh, over perceived decline? I mean, you alluded to this uh, earlier, but if you can elaborate a little, a little bit, purportedly caused by the quote-unquote rising generation. Yeah, in New England, in New England, it's a fascinating question because they come over and they're excited. My goodness, here we are. We're free. So exciting to be here. And, uh, and they were excited to be here. Uh, even though those conditions were very tough at the beginning, early going. A lot of people went back, which is not usually known by, by Americans, gave up on, on going on. So, so you're coming over uh, in Cambridge. I'm sitting in Cambridge, Massachusetts, as we're, as we're talking. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, the local minister, a very gifted man, Thomas Shepard, he, he looks around him and you know, it's life or death to get fields cleared and corn raised. It's life or death to have cattle. Because these were meat-eating meat eating people. They were not living off fish, not used to eating fish. And uh, it's life or death. And he says after a while to, his, to the townspeople in his sermons, we have these sermons, he says, you know, you're, you're obsessed with your farms, you're obsessed with the pigs you have. You're obsessed with property. You're, 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 what's happened to what's happened to your religion? And and he uses the word decline, and he says we have to we have to renew our commitment to the divine as as coming first. And uh, so this is a kind of a to use the word contradiction. This is a kind of contradiction. I mean, I, we don't have what the lay people said back to him. We can imagine them sitting there hearing him say this. Say, well, how are we going to feed ourselves if we don't get some more land cleared? I mean, it's like it's life or death. And uh, of course, we're obsessed with clearing clearing the land and planting orchards, all the things they had to do. Amazing list of things they had to do to survive. So then the then the children come along. There have been a lot of children. And the children have never experienced the, the tough times of the Puritans in, in England. It's a classic intergenerate, it's a classic immigrant experience. Happens again and again and again and again in American history. The immigrant generation, the parents have gone through a lot of difficulties. The children are born here. They're raised you know, in America. They're different. They're different. And the ministers, like not, not so much Thomas Shepard, but plenty of others, 
say, hey, wait a minute, these children are not as zealous as the parents were. There's, I mean, the, the parents sacrificed everything to get over here. What are, the, what are the children sacrificing? They also are wanting land. They're also very greedy for more land, more land. They want more land. Partly because they're having children themselves and they need lots of land for their children. So this argument about decline, which to Thomas Shepard in the 1630s was straightforward, you know, stop being so obsessed with your pigs, orchard, whatever, turns into a larger complaint about, and the phrase that people use is the rising generation. Why aren't the children as zealous as we were? This happens in the Quaker movement. This happens in the Baptists. I mean, it, it can be said again and again and again in churches around the world, Christian churches around the world, and no doubt elsewhere. And, uh, you know, you make a sacrifice, you're zealous, and then the children don't have to make the same sacrifice. Uh, so that's, that's the heart of the matter, and it, it leads to, I cite a poet, minister, Michael Wigglesworth, who, uh, you know, absorbing all of this, <laughs> writes poetry about New England in decline. And one of his, well, his most famous poems is called The Day of Doom, it was published in 1662. By the way, if you find a copy in your attic, you'll be a very, very wealthy person. Uh, very few copies survive. In fact, none of the first edition. The and he's and he and it's it's a poem about the day of judgment. Christ returns. It's sort of like Santa Claus at Christmas. You know, suddenly there's a bright light in the sky, and you hear sounds, trumpets sounding. Christ is coming back, and the dead are raised, and the living are can rush out of their houses, and, and Christ is arriving to 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 bring together the saints and send the rest of the people down to hell. And Wigglesworth goes to great detail about all the things that people have done that Christ might not like. It's a, it's a judgment point. It's, it's a, it's a wake-up call point. I mean, it, the purpose of this is not actually to say, you are going to hell, or you're not going to be saved. The purpose of the point is to say, wake up. Wake up, because be careful, because you might go to hell. And curiously enough, this point sold like hotcakes in the room. Uh, and uh, actually sold in England, too. It's, it's a pretty good poem. It's a long poem, The Day of Doom. So declension became a major literary genre, we might say. The Jeremiah, it's sometimes called, major literary genre. People preach it again and again. And then something bad happens, a drought, a storm, a war, whatever. Oh, that's God punishing us for our, for our misbehavior. That's, a, that's, by the way, not unique to the colonists. It's also a theme in Scotland and England. So that's part of the Jeremiah tradition. It's a tension theme and has deep imprints, leaves deep imprints on sermons, histories, and other things. That would, let me just go back to the pilgrims for a moment. So William Bradford, the uh, came over with the Mayflower, became governor of the colony, the tiny little colony. He writes a history of Marvelous book called Up Plymouth Plantation. And of course, initially there was only one village, Plymouth. And then in the 1630s, 10, 15 years later, the young people of the town are looking for more land. 
And so they found Situate and Duxbury and other towns near Plymouth. And for Bradford, this is the crime. We don't we no longer have this wonderful fellowship and everybody sacrificing for the good of the whole. And that becomes a personal theme throughout American American history. That people are greedy and you know, just, you know, fill in the X, you know, capitalism and everything. People are not thinking of the good of the whole anymore. We we owe that theme to first of all the Old Testament, and then we owe it to the Puritans. So We've uh, already discussed your epilogue. Um, I wanted to to address a specific uh, component of it. Uh, you argue, okay, why was the real struggle among those descended from the Puritans in turn derived from 19th century conflicts between Congregationalists and Unitarians? Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, here in New England, um, as of 18, 1800, there were only Congregational churches with a few Episcopal and a few Baptists and a few Quakers. Lots of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots. Every town had a congregation church. And but the sands were shifting, the sands of doctrine were shifting. And so that, for example, the doctrine of original sin was no longer making sense to some people. And once that doctrine goes, a lot of other things go like needing Christ's sacrifice on the cross to redeem us from original sin. And so that led to the rise within Congregationalism of people who disagreed theologically with others. And the name that these people acquired was the name Unitarian because they denied the doctrine of the Trinity, God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, just, just God. And Jesus was a human or superhuman or divinely sent human, but not, not, not equivalent to God. So you can't really have, it's like, you know, oil and water. You can't have both of these in the same bottle at the same time. And so there's schisms, schisms after schism after schism after schism after schism. So here in Cambridge, we have two first churches. One is Unitarian, one is Congregational. The congregations got kicked out of the original first church and walked around the corner and found another first church called Congregational Church. So then, the then the uh, then what I talk about in the book is the in the epilogue is uh, how each side uh, tries to validate its its position. It's either staying with orthodoxy or leaving orthodoxy by turning to the Puritan past. And the Unitarians, uh, but, but I, I should say that both sides were, were a, little, a little bit troubled by what the past held. Neither side could say yippee for everything in the past. Uh, take just, for example, the Salem witch hunt, kind of an ugly thing to you know, have on their record. And so, but the Unitarians were, were very, very aggressive in repudiating, repudiating a lot of the Puritan past and uh, accused, accused the Congregationalists of, for example, condemning children to die because God was not going to save them. And or uh, accused them of uh, uh, being incapable of true moral action. And lots of other things. Uh, and you know, cited the witch hunts 
cited cited Johnson Edwards, 18th century minister in particular, as evidence of just how bad, how bad the theology of the congregations was. And so the uh, struggle broke out for the possession of the past, and uh, it's uh, I'm, I'm sitting in a, in a Unitarian founded divinity school, so one can say that the Unitarians won that issue, that schism. But it's a lot more complicated than that. So that's the that's why they appear in the book and they play a very distinct role in what I'm going to refer to as myth making about the 17th century. They were not always uh, faithful to the sources. So I know I have, I have one final question. Um, I know you're retired. Um, is there anything uh, new you're working on? Any projects you're involved in that you can disclose? Well, uh, <clears throat> so doing this, I'll, I'll say two things. One, just from a strictly human point of view, doing this book, which is a 500-page book, was tiring. And I uh, didn't, the, the last last day with the proofs was July 13th, 2019. And uh, I have been having something that's rare in my life, a kind of little holiday from working on scholarship. Or, or anything major. I've had some minor things I had to agree to write. So, but you know, the I'll, I'll answer this in a in a different way. Uh, my 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 mentor at Yale, where I did my graduate work, would say to us, no matter what work has been done on a question or a topic or an aspect of the past, we never know everything. We never have exhausted it. So one of these days, some light bulb is going to go. And I will sense, I will feel, I'll have this kind of brush that there's something new for me to work on, but I don't yet know what it is. Thank you for being on the uh, show today, Professor Hall. Thank you for having me. So the book is The Puritans, A Transatlantic History, published earlier this year by Princeton University Press. On behalf of Professor Hall, this is Ryan Tripp. This has been a production of the New Books Network, the New Books and History channel of, as always, please tune in next time.